0: It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. It's good to be with you. Like many of you, I have been working from home for these last couple of weeks, and this week I'm even broadcasting the show for my house. So if you hear dogs barking or basketball dribbling, it's not your imagination. It's actually my life. Well, let's start with this. Um, First, let me get my dogs. (laughs) Okay. So this new normal each day is punctuated by more data, grim data. Confirmed cases, deaths due to coronavirus, historic stock market losses, skyrocketing unemployment claims. We're bombarded by these grim numbers and forced to try to make sense of it all. And at the same time, we're trying to keep a sense of normalcy and predictability. So school continues, even though now it's online. We host meetings over Zoom instead of in a conference room. And it applies to elections too. We're of course in the middle, An election year. And the coronavirus pandemic has upended primary elections in more than a dozen states as officials decide whether to postpone or completely change how their primaries were supposed to function. One state, Wisconsin, is determined to keep its primary on schedule. Patrick Marley is politics and statehouse reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I spoke to him on Friday morning. Here we are with Wisconsin, which is still planning to hold its primary on Tuesday, April seventh. So what is going on? Why is Wisconsin still holding a primary when so many others have postponed theirs?
1: So the big difference between Wisconsin and many other states is we don't have just a presidential primary, but we also have a statewide election for Supreme Court. We have local offices like Milwaukee Mayor and uh, county boards across the state that will be on the ballot. And so the concern is that if you don't have an election, You'll have a many many um, seats that are open, and that creates a real set of headaches because if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't if you don't fill your mayor's seat, uh, then you don't potentially don't have a mayor during a pandemic.
0: Right. But as Wisconsin officials were watching the pandemic play out, they had to know that well, maybe we should have alternatives to this. That we could find a solution to. Electing local officials while at the same time, maybe either postponing or protecting voters. what's what's
1: happened with that? Well, there just seems to be a lack of interest in that from uh, both the Democratic governor and the Republican lawmakers. Uh, you know, the Democratic governor says he understands the issue, he's concerned about it. He wants to make some changes to the way to the way the election is done. For instance, he wants to suspend our, op- our uh, uh, voter ID law. He wants to make um, ballots more easily accessible, uh, absentee ballots. But he he's firm on saying the election should be on Tuesday. And then the Republicans who control the legislature um, just say that the state has to make do with a bad situation and just hold an election, that that's sort of a cornerstone of democracy, that even in times of crisis, we hold elections.
0: Now, I know, though, that a lot of folks have filed lawsuits trying to either – change the date or make changes to the way that the election's being held. And recently, a a federal judge gave a ruling uh, where he did criticize the state for continuing to hold the election, blaming the governor and the state legislature for not doing more, but said, I can't, in my duty, I cannot postpone this election. But what sort of accommodations have been made based on his ruling?
1: Yeah, so you make a good point about what he's saying about the legislature and the, and the governor. He essentially says they're derelict in their duties. That it's uh, c- clearly obvious in his view that this election should be put off. Uh, that we're in the middle of a pandemic. That it's dangerous. He said in his ruling on Thursday that you know there's there's three potential outcomes here, and that is one, you have an abysmal turnout. That's not what you want for an election. Two, that you have A bunch of people getting sick and, you know, all the bad outcomes that come from that, or three, both of those things happen. Mm. Um, But he says it's the job of the legislature and the governor to take care of that. They're not doing it. And he says, um, you know, uh, lots of times judges are put in the position of just letting public officials go forward with bad ideas. And so uh, he is going to allow the election to occur on Tuesday. But he did make some significant um, changes to that. One thing he said is that absentee ballots, which normally have to be received by the end of election day to be counted, can be uh, received for another week, so up until April thirteenth. and they can even be cast after election day. So you have to request um, an absentee ballot by Friday. But if you don't receive it until after Tuesday, you can still cast it. or even if you receive it on, even if you received it a week ago and haven't done anything with it, Three days after the election, you could go cast it. Um, that's probably the part of his decision that's generating the most um, controversy, you know, support from voter rights advocates, some concern from others that um, it's not fair to be casting ballots after Election Day. He also made it easier for people to uh, vote absentee without having a witness's signature. And he did extend uh, the uh, how long you could have to request an absentee ballot by one day until Friday.
0: So can this be appealed? I mean, are we going to see these lawsuits continuing to drag out post-election and we still have fighting going on for
1: weeks? Not only can it be appealed, it has been appealed. The Mm. Republican Party uh, intervened in this case just hours after the decision was made, went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and asked to block the order. I don't know how fast the appeals court is going to act. It's possible they could do something between now and Tuesday. It's possible they could not. Um, And then the judge said... That Although he wouldn't postpone the election, he would allow the voter mobilization groups that brought the lawsuit to return to him after the election if they see major problems. For instance, let's say minority turnout was markedly lower than it usually is, he would allow them to come in and make a claim that it, they need some kind of relief and what that might look like, who knows, but
0: Right. I mean, that's po-
1: kind of <laughs> Potentially th- th- That's could very be like, crazy
0: to say that you can come after election out. to say, well, these folks have been denied access. And so we're going to do a redo. I mean,
1: yeah. Your, yeah, your question is a very valid one. I mean, what would that look like? Very unclear. But in Wisconsin, we're very good at having prolonged political legal <laughs> battles. And uh, <laughs> we're having one now, and it will probably go on for quite some time.
0: And I assume what the Republicans were upset about were, was the relaxation of voter ID laws and the extension of the absentee ballot.
1: That yeah, so the, vote, the, the voter ID law didn't get changed, uh, mm-hmm. with the, but, the, but the witness um, mm-hmm. law got changed. So right now you you can't cast a ballot as an absentee unless you get a witness to um, sign sign a certificate and provide their address. So to make sure that... Uh, You are indeed the person who cast the ballot that was in your name. Obviously, right now, it's much harder for people to get a witness. If you live alone and you're quarantining yourself, uh, it may be harder to get a witness. And the judge said, well, people can find workarounds, right? If someone's delivering groceries to you, you can get that person to sign it. So he didn't just throw out the witness requirement in all cases, but he did say you can file a statement that says, I tried to get a witness. I couldn't do it. And in that case, they will still count your ballot. That That is one thing the Republicans uh, do not like and have asked to appeal. And one, one concern, and this is a concern for election officials too, is there's already a bunch of people who have submitted their ballots who may have had trouble getting witnesses. There are people who have probably submitted ballots without a witness signature that are in line to be thrown out. Uh, do those people have a chance to come back and now send a letter saying, I tried to get a witness and couldn't? It's a little unclear what will happen to those voters.
0: And Patrick... You know better than anybody that the state is going to be a battleground in the presidential election. And I'm wondering what this experience has taught you and we should be thinking about as we go into the fall. If we are continuing to be in the middle of a health crisis, people are still worried about casting ballots. We're, We're hearing a whole lot now about a national push to do vote by mail in every single state. Um, yeah. What would that, <laughs> has your experience in watching this told you about just how good or bad or messy or predictable this will be in Wisconsin?
1: I think even if things go really well on Tuesday, they're going to be pretty dysfunctional. You know, um, there are many places in Wisconsin that are are. Almost everywhere in Wisconsin has a huge shortage of poll workers because poll workers are older and many of them don't want to come to the polls. Milwaukee, for instance, normally has 180 voting locations. It's going to have 12 or fewer. And so you can only imagine the confusion that could create. Somebody's used to going to a polling place. Now they find out they're, they've got to go somewhere else. Maybe they can or can't get to that place. Uh, there's going to be, even though overall turnout will be lower. You could have a really large number of people at any given polling place. Some people in rural communities may not have any polling location at all. The Elections Commission has raised the prospect that they would have to drive to a different town to vote. Uh, The one silver lining here is that this is April, not November. And so all of the problems that are uncovered on Tuesday, uh, they can perhaps fix for future elections or find better ways to deal with in future elections.
0: So as you noted, Patrick, the state, is famous, infamous, I guess, for political polarization and log jams between, and now we have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. I mean, how likely is it that they would work together to fix this before November?
1: You know, the governor and the Republican-led legislature have not been able to get along at all, and there's no sign of that improving. Uh, that is true. The State elections are run by a commission that consists of three Republicans and three Democrats. Unlike their colleagues that are more directly political, they actually do a pretty good job of getting along. Uh, they do sometimes have some partisan differences, but they've generally been committed to finding ways to do the best they can to make elections happen. So it's uncertain. what We'll have to see how Tuesday goes before we know whether there are big systemic changes Mm -hmm. but but for local clerks one of the big issues here is wisconsin has long allowed uh, absentee voting by mail but it's just not something that people use very much we have early voting and so people are much more likely to go to their clerk's office a week or two before the election and vote there rather than do it by mail and now uh we have this complete sea change on a dime where you know more than a million uh, absentee ballots have been requested that could be two thirds or three quarters of the total ballots cast. And so these clerks are just completely overwhelmed with mail ballots coming in and being requested. And they've never they're just not equipped to deal with it. It's not like a state that's had, you know, a decade or two decades of of mail voting. This is completely new to them.
0: Well, Patrick Marley, I really appreciate you coming and speaking with me. Thank you for covering this and please stay safe.
1: You too. Thanks very much.
0: Patrick Marley is politics and statehouse reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. This is an evolving story. I'll be keeping up with it and tweeting my analysis. You can find me at Amy E. Walter or head over to politicswithamywalter.org for all the latest. it seems all but certain that Wisconsin will hold its elections on Tuesday, April 7th. Wisconsin, of course, is also a key battleground state for the fall. Both parties are going to fight fiercely over its 10 electoral college votes. And as such, the April 7th primary may be a preview of what to expect this fall, especially if we're still in the midst of a health crisis. We just heard from local political reporter Patrick Marley of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about what Election Day may look like on Tuesday, But I also wanted to hear from someone who was involved in helping to make this decision. So I called up Representative Tyler August. He's a Republican member of the Wisconsin Assembly and the Speaker Pro Tem.
2: Well, I think it's been one of the few things that the governor and the legislature has actually been able to agree upon in the last year since he took office. It's not just the state Supreme Court or the presidential primary. We've got local races for county board, mayors, city councils all on the ballot on Tuesday. And the issue is a lot of these terms expire within a couple of weeks of the election. So if we push the election back, even just a couple of weeks, there's the concern that there could be local governments in this pandemic without a Mm -hmm. leader at the top, that there would be no acting mayor or no city council or county board. So in the continuity of government sense, we felt like it was important to try and hold the election responsibly
0: so when you look at again what the the judge is saying and what we're hearing from health officials that they can't guarantee that people are necessarily going to be safe when they go and vote how do you tell your constituents don't worry about it you, you can go to the polls and feel okay on Tuesday
2: well i think that for the last couple of weeks as we've seen things kind of escalate across the country and here in wisconsin both the Democrat governor and the Republican members and the Democrat members of the legislature have been constantly beating the drum about getting absentee ballots. Uh, the deadline Mm -hmm. was extended to get an absentee ballot and it's actually been amazing. The number of absentee requests that we, that we have had. For instance, we had a state Supreme court race a year ago in April of 19 where we had 170,000 or so absentee ballots right now we're sitting at about 1.1 million absentee ballots. So we feel like Wisconsinites are still exercising their right to vote in a safer manner. A year ago, we had a total turnout in the April election of 1.2 million people. So it's entirely possible that we will have more turnout this year in absentee ballots than we even had in person last year. So we feel like People are making the decision for themselves if they feel like they should attend the election in person or if they should get an absentee ballot. Poll workers are making that decision as well. In-person turnout is going to be much, much lower than it usually is. But overall, voter participation, I think, is going to be higher.
0: You know, the Republican legislature and the governor have been at loggerheads uh, at certain points during uh, this last year or so. Um, how would you describe right now the relationship between the legislature and the governor in dealing both with this voting issue and also with the pandemic crisis?
2: It's better than it, than it, it, than it was in under normal circumstances. I can start by saying that um, you're right. There's been a lot of disagreement and a, a lot of animosity between the legislature and the governor since he took office. And there's a lot of reasons for that but I I think we've seen at least our caucus, we have been very careful to not get out ahead of the governor on things. He's making a lot of decisions, um, some of which our members love and some of which our members don't, but this isn't the time to be taking, you know, political shots at anybody. We're trying to figure, figure this out. Now, it doesn't help when the governor presents us with a proposal of a bill that much like the federal version uh, of the bill, um, people viewed as kind of a, a vehicle to try and get some of the things done that they believe in that don't really have a whole lot to do with the current pandemic situation.
0: Yeah, um, like what, what was what was in there that you uh,
2: thought was uh, susp- uh, suspending photo ID requirements? I mean, that's been a that's been something that the that the left has tried to do in this state since we first put those put those requirements in place. I mean, they showing a photo ID for voting. Doesn't have anything to do with, with the actually servicing the people of the state. So I think there's a lot of ground we can cover and come up with an agreement that everybody can can support and be proud of. Um, I just hope that we continue down the road of working together instead of, you know, leaking out different uh, proposals or um, conversations, uh, which has happened in the past. I'm hopeful it's not going to happen uh, during this crisis. Do you
0: think that Wisconsin will be better prepared to deal with the potential that you may be having these same debates over should we show up at the polls, poll workers not coming, absentee ballot, what's required, what's not? Do you think you'll still be having those debates or do you think that maybe you can use this as a lesson into how to make sure you're prepared for November?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that like everyone, I think we're all hoping that, that this is something we can look back on in November that that we all got through together and that we're not still going through it. But having the amount of lead time up to the November election that we have, and I mean, there's no handbook for any of this stuff. There's a lot of the emergency statutes, um, legislative emergency statutes for as far as meeting that are being uh, brought into play for the very first time in our state's history right right now. So there's no handbook. So we're kind of going through this and, and, uh, and learning as we go. But I think that having the time between now and November to have a longer discussion about what do we do if we're still in this situation to continue to make sure that everyone who wants to vote has the ability to
0: Representative Tyler August, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
2: Absolutely. It's good to be with you. Thanks.
0: All right. Stay safe.
2: All right. You too. Thanks a lot.
0: Representative Tyler August is the Speaker Pro Tem of the Wisconsin Assembly. As the spread of COVID-19 continues across the country, New hotspots are taking shape in cities like Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, and New Orleans. And with them, a troubling new trend has emerged. The virus seems to be having disproportionate effect on communities of color. So earlier this week, I connected with Congresswoman Gwen Moore, a Democrat who represents Wisconsin's 4th District, which includes the city of Milwaukee, to find out what she's been seeing and experiencing.
3: I live on the north side of Milwaukee, where... Uh, You know, I've done town hall meetings, I've done other uh, big events, and it seems that the central city of Milwaukee, among African American men, seems to kind of be the epicenter at this point of the COVID-19 infections. And so I've been dodging COVID-19 for a minute. So I'm not in a quarantine so much as I am just almost religiously following the stay-at-home uh, advice. I, I mm-hmm. do go out to drugstores and such, but uh, I have been wearing my that my one little mask that I've worn over and over again because I cannot afford to get sick, Amy.
0: Right. You. You're a cancer survivor.
3: That's right. And yeah. I'm currently still being treated uh, with oral medications, doing mm-hmm. well, doing great. Okay. Um, but it does uh, sort of incapacitate your immune system significantly.
0: Let's talk about the fact as you pointed out that the north side of milwaukee where you live district that you represent has a disproportionate number of people coming down with COVID 19 and most of them are african-american men what's going on in milwaukee
3: we of course have been victims of not having been warned soon enough uh and then when we did put the shelter in place uh, orders in I'm I'm concerned at this point about how seriously pe- people are taking it. I saw a group of uh, four young men uh, as I was taking the garbage out, walking down the alley, and I you know I sort of shouted out to them. Now you guys know you're not supposed to be uh, all on top of each other like that, right? Because they were clearly just hanging out, and I do think that it's extremely important for people to take it seriously. I think that you know when people don't haven't experienced illness or death or uh, and, it, you know, it's been a century since we had a pandemic like this. They don't necessarily have the uh, valuable lessons to, to bring them uh, into into consciousness.
0: And how do you think the rest of the elected officials in the state are doing statewide, but also focusing specifically on the fact that so many of these cases are coming in African-American communities?
3: we have gotten feedback and some concern from constituents that they have, they have gone to hospitals and felt that they've been discriminated against, hmm. felt that they have been turned away for fear or concern that, they, that there were uh, patients that the hospitals preferred more. Uh, but I do think that the protocol has been to be very conservative. And if a person is absolutely is not breathing um, they're being told to go and shelter in place and to isolate themselves uh, because I don't know that w- w- we haven't uh, determined what the appropriate therapy is for this disease. And so, uh, sadly, uh, the people who are being hospitalized are those people who are desperately in need of the ventilator uh, uh, rescue and are other uh, affected in other serious ways. I do know another young African-American man who suffered really uh, seriously but is now recovering. And I know another, another couple of other African-American men, and these people, I suppose, would have had to have been affected two, three weeks ago, who are uh, resolving. One person is resolving and another person is not doing very well. So what I'm saying is, is that we're now seeing some of the impacts from what happened two, three weeks ago. And three weeks ago, we literally had one case in the entire state, and it wasn't in Milwaukee.
0: This trend also caught the attention of Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley, who, according to an exclusive report from the Associated Press, wrote a letter to HHS Secretary Alex Azar calling for more racial and ethnic data to be collected as it pertains to the coronavirus. We have to take a quick break. More with Democratic Congresswoman Gwen Moore in just a moment. Milwaukee, of course, is interesting for another political reason.
3: I am thrilled to announce
4: that in 2020, the Democratic Party's national convention will be held right here in the great state of Wisconsin, in the great city of Milwaukee.
0: It's hard to believe that that announcement came just over a year ago, on March 11th, 2019. Since the coronavirus pandemic began, there's been much speculation about whether or not the parties will hold their conventions— with all the traditional pomp and circumstance. The speculation grew with the postponement of the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And earlier this week, former vice president and likely Democratic nominee Joe Biden weighed in on the
5: issue. I doubt whether the Democratic convention is gonna be able to be held in uh, in mid-July, early July. I think it's gonna to have to move into August. And on
0: Thursday, convention organizers made it official, announcing that the Democratic convention would be delayed until August. The situation and planning is still fluid, according to a statement from the organizers. Congresswoman Gwen Moore is co-chair of the host committee for the convention in Milwaukee, and I spoke to her before the postponement was announced, but she provided some important context, particularly as organizers continue to weigh their options.
3: We are, we're, we're looking at all angles. We're we're looking at how do we execute a convention and take care of the the responsibilities of our nominating process that are that's fair to our nominee, and currently, um, we we don't have a nominee. We have uh, Biden and and, uh, and Sanders who are still challengers, and so we we're being very careful to make sure that none of the delegates feel that they have, uh, you know, they've been cheated out of their their opportunities to have their say. This is moving parts, and obviously, you know, I wanted to showcase Milwaukee. Would love to continue to do that to the extent that we can, but uh, it's all about getting our nominee.
0: How much of a hit do you think Milwaukee takes, and your constituents in particular, if the convention does not actually come to town in terms of lost income and revenue?
3: Amy, we had really looked forward to a couple hundred million dollars mm. uh, in economic benefit, and then maybe spending you know, about $70 million toward that end. Uh, And so it's going to be, it would cost a significant amount of money. It's a very uncomfortable conversation, Amy, to Mm -hmm. just continue to try to speculate about how much we'll lose. But I can tell you, aspirationally, uh, we had had every single room filled, hotel room. We had bread and breakfast. We had all of our restaurants, our perimeters set up, our bars, industry. And so uh, people have made commitments. And so it, uh, it, it's you, you, we're shining a light on this because the DNC is coming here, but there have been cancellations like this all over the country hmm. uh, for various events. And so we, too, will take an economic hit uh, if this particular event doesn't come to fruition. Uh, but again, we're going to nominate somebody and we're going to do it some kind of way.
0: As you're watching this unfold, we know we're just at the very early stages of this pandemic and watching the toll it's taking on the health and economy uh, of people in this country. What are you worried about right now?
3: Right now, what we're experiencing, Amy, is that 70 percent 7 7-0, 70% of our economy is reliant upon consuming in order to run. Whether that's taking an airplane some way, the city bus across town, hanging out at your bar, stopping in for chicken wings or Friday night fish fry, and that our economy, if it were to collapse, it's collapsing because people don't have money. And so when you when you when seventy percent of your economy uh, relies on people having money, that ought to be an abject lesson in trying to figure out how to make sure that more of the largesse and the resources and the profits of this country actually get into the hands of people who can spend it. Because right now, that's what we're trying to do.
0: Congresswoman Gwen Moore, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and stay safe.
3: Listen, it is always wonderful to talk to you anytime, any day.
0: We reached out to Congresswoman Moore for comment after the announcement that the convention was being delayed until August this is her response, Quote, We are so proud that the rest of the country will see Milwaukee shine. Wisconsin led the rest of the country in advancing labor rights. Our state's progressive ideals are woven into our country's values. What better state is there to help shape the future of the country? With that being said, I'm pleased with the decision to move the Democratic National Convention to the week of August 17th. Another month provides a lot of time for more planning on the ground to secure a successful and safe convention. We now move to Texas, where earlier this week, Republican Governor Greg Abbott announced new statewide protocols. I'm establishing
4: essential services and activities protocols. In short, what this provides is that Texans are expected to limit personal interactions that can lead to the spread of COVID-19.
0: I spoke to Steve Adler, the Democratic mayor of Austin, who issued his own stay-at-home order for the city of Austin on March 24th. I asked him if he thinks the governor's decision will help fight the spread of COVID-19 or if it's already too late.
5: I don't think it's too late. And I I am pleased that the governor went ahead and, and instituted this statewide. You know, the city of Austin could do a really good job, but our efforts are not going to be uh, effective unless it happens all over the state. People come into our city from all over the state. The, the distribution chains that that end up putting groceries on, on our shelves in, in our city uh, have their distribution centers uh, in other places around Texas. Uh, if those cities and those towns and those areas uh, get hit really hard, we'll lose the drivers and, and the distribution chains, and, and we're not going to have them uh, shelves in our grocery store stock. So it really does take a concerted action, and I applaud the governor for doing that. I am concerned that in his order, he uh, expresses that churches, for example, should continue to do things remotely in the home, but he allows for churches to, to still meet. Uh, I think that sends a, a mixed message. Uh, about the the danger associated with large gatherings. Uh, So uh, good and bad. We had a more strict construction ban, similar to what San Francisco just put into practice. Uh, The governor preempted us, and I'm concerned that that might be a a leak uh, in our our system. But overall, I'm happy that he acted.
0: Well, it's no secret that you and the governor have butted heads um, over policy over the years, whether it was everything from Uh, homelessness policy in the city of Austin to the ban on plastic bags. And I'm wondering if this tension that you've had uh, between a more liberal Austin and a more conservative state government and governor has leaked into decisions around how to respond to the COVID-19 crisis.
5: You know, I think that the political issues are, are very definitely there. In Texas right now, it's not Austin against the state, which is how it, it used to be. Uh, but right now, the the cities, the big cities are very much aligned. Uh, within a 24-hour period, all working together, uh, when the state wasn't acting, uh, Houston and Dallas and Fort Worth and Austin and San Antonio and, and El Paso all acted. And, and together, we were able to get over half of the population in the state Uh, under a shelter-at-home order so the cities are are acting but I'll tell you that I know that there are Republican uh, uh, judges, uh, county judges uh, uh, in the state that were warning the governor to act to give them cover uh, because their communities uh, were hearing mixed messages a lot coming from from national leadership on whether this was really serious or not serious uh, and, and the politics were such in those more conservative communities that, that that it may not have been politically viable for them to do what it was that they needed to do, which is one of the reasons why the governor acting uh, was so important. But yes, that issue was alive given the messaging, I think, coming nationally from the president.
0: Well, and on the issue of homelessness, can you tell us how the city of Austin is working with the homeless community at this at this time, and whether you've seen uh, COVID nineteen cases spread among this community.
5: Well, the community of people experiencing homelessness is one of the most susceptible to this, one of the most vulnerable populations. Uh, so yes, we we did have uh, a one positive uh, in one of our shelters. We were quickly able to move that person out to to an isolation uh, uh, location. Uh, we have um, put under lease. Uh, multiple hotels in our city so that we have isolation opportunities. Uh, We have emergency meal programs now that are uh, being piloted that we're just about to expand. We've opened up 24-7 showers in two of our libraries and have uh, identified a specific uh, task force strike team for uh, homelessness because we recognize that one's a vulnerable population, and if something goes sideways there, it's going to present... uh, Uh, a real challenge for the city.
0: Finally, I want to get your sense of, as we look to the weeks ahead, we know that we are not yet at the peak. If you can tell us what your concerns are uh, moving forward through this month and whether your city, and and quite frankly, your state, is able to handle what could be an
5: incredible number of cases. My concern right now are the isolated hotspots. When you look at what happened in Seoul, Korea, it was one person, patient 31, that, that became a leak in their system uh, and unwittingly infected many, many, many people, and it became tough to control. Uh, that's my fear right now.
0: Is there a hotspot in particular, I mean, the area around University of Texas as one of those hotspots?
5: Well, hotspots uh, both, you know, identified, you know, geographically, but, but more in terms of community. Uh, so, yes, the, the, the students that came back from, from Spring Break represent a hotspot in our city. The students who came back represent the people that their infection and, and, and a few that, that have become affected from them uh, have represented half of the confirmed case increase that we've had over the last 48 hours.
0: What are you able to do about that?
5: Well, you know, we're going to try to isolate that as best we can, and we're trying to get the message out as widely as we can so that everybody in this city is, is taking this seriously. Uh, you know, over half of the cases we have right now are people that are in the, the younger demographic, uh, people 20 to 29 and, and, and 30 to 39. We need for that community to, to really understand that the biggest risk right now for people's grandparents, for those that are susceptible in our community, is really the, the unknowing and unwitting passage of infection from people that, that, that don't feel like they have it.
0: Mayor Steve Adler, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate this.
5: Absolutely, Amy. You be safe.
0: You too. Steve Adler is the mayor of Austin, Texas. voters have long been the backbone of the Democratic Party, consistently voting for the Democratic nominee for president by 70 points or more. Despite this and the fact that he took just 8% of the African-American vote in 2016, President Trump is actively appealing to black voters ahead of the 2020 election. Like with this Super Bowl ad that highlights the president's work on criminal justice reform.
3: I'm free to hug my family. I'm free to start over. This is the greatest day of my life. My heart is just bursting with gratitude. I want to thank President Donald John Trump.
0: So, how realistic is this? To dig into that question and to understand the history of black support for Democrats, I spoke with Cheryl Laird. She's an assistant professor of government at Bowdoin College and the co author of Steadfast Democrats social forces shape Black political behavior.
4: There is a theory that has long been seen as the explanation for why African-Americans vote for Democrats, and it's called linked fate theory. Um, And Michael Dawson from the University of Chicago coined this um, in the early 90s and the late 80s. And it said that Black people have this belief amongst themselves that what happens to the group influences their individual lives. And so if we want to see and understand democratic partisanship, it's this group conscious, shared historical experience space. We argue like, yes, there's something to be said about linked fate. But in fact, if we think about how democratic partisanship loyalty over time has maintained for blacks, there has actually been changing things about the black experience, changing things about um, where blacks live and their backgrounds. And so we really need to think a little bit more about what other factors could be playing a role, because in fact, in our analysis and analysis done by others, linked fate didn't predict partisanship. So we felt like we don't have an answer, honestly. We know that it's kind of a social thing here, like to be black is to be Democrat. But the way in which we understand that is through social reinforcement.
0: And so that's where we then started to think about, okay, well, how can we show that? How can we explain that to people? To your point that the loyalty really comes back to this loyalty to a Democratic party of the 60s, LBJ, the civil rights movement, great society. It was that commitment that has kept African-American voters loyal to Democrats.
4: The party has been the space where you've also seen Black political empowerment. And that's kind of like just a big term there to say, basically, when we've seen Black people enter a political office and be able to get access to, you know, the positions in Congress and even the presidency, it's typically been done through the Democratic Party. So in addition to not only standing for policies and positions that seem to be supportive of particular types of race relations, you also see um, Black individuals being able to gain access to the governing structure in a system where minority voice, like empirically in terms of the size of the population, let alone the race of the population, um, is not typically heard as much. On top of that, right, you also have the Southern strategy, right, and, and a clear move by the opposing party um, in a way that is, at that time of LBJ,
0: openly stating that they are taking a position against civil rights. Talk to us a little bit about what you learned about what happens when African-American voters say publicly— Um, or flirt publicly with Republican Party or Republican proposals?
4: What we need to think about with what we observe African-Americans doing, right, is that it is a large group of people collectively deciding to behave in a particular way in their politics, right, when it comes to voting at the presidency level in the federal government. Um, And so in doing that, right, there is a way in which you have to basically get a collective action to occur, right? But basically, how do you get a group of people to do something where everybody doesn't Need to participate in it or people could choose not to. Um, and so one way we argue that we see African-Americans being able to create such a consistent loyalty is that not only is the norm understood that this is the way that we behave politically and then it's also reinforced within black spaces, but that then there is a social repercussion for those who don't. Um, and so they are basically what we call sanctioned, right? They mm-hmm. are held accountable for the decision to decide that they aren't going to be in line with the party and the group expectations to do so. um, And they are called out for it. And the ability for that to be effective, I think, has a lot to do with the types of social relationships that African Americans have. Like, although we have moved past Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education, African Americans are still heavily segregated. They're still in social networks that are disproportionately comprised of, if not all comprised of, African Americans. And so a norm that's understood by then that group of how one is supposed to behave, you're able then to use these social repercussions to call out that individual. I think that's exactly what we saw happen with Kanye West. Kanye West's openness, I think, about his republicanism, um, or at least conservatism, I would say, and support for Trump. I don't actually know if he's even really a Republican. I think he likes Trump, (laughs) and I think he may be leaning conservative. But I would argue that some of the reason why he even felt some comfort in doing that is indicative of some of the social space that he's now in, right? Like he is in Calabasas. He is in a family that's not Black. He is um, around people who are also not Black. And we argue in the book that you're more likely to see people step away from the norm as their social networks become more diverse racially. But for most Blacks, that's not the case because then you can't hold them accountable to the same
0: expectation of your behavior. Talk about President Trump and his outreach to African Americans. We heard in 2016, of course, it was the you have nothing left to lose. This year, there are really more pointed appeals, whether it's on issues like criminal justice reform, advertising to African American voters. Is he going about this in a way that suggests that maybe he can do what he has set out to do, which is Pull in more African-American voters.
4: He's making these appeals. I don't know if they will be that effective. I think in my mind, what I've seen them as, as they could be genuine appeals that he's thinking are going to work. I think they won't work because the strong partisan norm is so effective and it's so understood. And there's nothing that has been really happened to mitigate that in any way, um, because it is basically reinforced by this like this racial segregation that we find African Americans in, like the black social networks maintain that party support. Additionally, I think the appeals that he or he's making may be something that be that is gonna be more effective, for instance, like white women suburban voters who might Mm -hmm. feel that he's been racially insensitive at times. And so now they feel like he is being more open to certain communities and more supportive. And so they will see that as more of a compassionate conservative.
0: Right. I think, to be fair, even his campaign would admit that they're not expecting to get, you know, majority of African American voters or even that many more, but just even making movement around the margins could be enough in a race that is gonna be very close.
4: Yes. I mean and I think in key states as well. Right. Five and or ten so percent
0: in yep. a, a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania yep. could be a yep. big deal
4: could be a big deal yeah no and i think again if the turnout levels led to people not turning out right, right because they were okay with him um that that would be a motivation and that would and that would adjust those numbers right that that would lead to potentially what he's exactly what they're looking
0: for well cheryl Laird, thank you so much for taking the time and talking me through all of this i appreciate it yeah.
4: no problem no problem it was great glad that we got able to catch up
0: Cheryl Laird is an assistant professor at government at Bowdoin College and co-author of Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. Finally, some closing thoughts from me. We're living through an extraordinary time, and all of us involved in the business of politics, analysts, pollsters, candidates, and reporters, we're all flying blind. What we shouldn't do is assume we know how this is going to end, or even how it will look a few months from now. But what we do know at this moment is that opinions of President Trump remain the same. If you liked him before this pandemic, you still think he's doing a good job. If you didn't think he was up to the job in February, well, you still don't think much of him now. Could this change if this health crisis spreads and grows? Sure. But for now, our traditional political battle lines are holding strong, even in the face of an unprecedented crisis. That's all for us today. I wanted to give a big shout out and thank you to the people who made this show possible under difficult circumstances. Patricia Jacob, Amber Hall, Alexandra Botee, Vince Fairchild, Debbie Daughtry, Polly Irungu, David Gable, and Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is politics with Amy Walter on the takeaway.